I feel bad for Thomas. Thomas is one of the only guys in church history who has an insult added to his name. We never call him just Thomas. He's always doubting Thomas. Peter denied Jesus three different times, and we don't call him denying Peter. Poor Thomas is branded. Despite, at the end of our text this morning, despite his profession of faith, Thomas is branded a doubter. Now, part of our judgmental attitude toward Thomas is probably because we think he should know better. He's one of the twelve, right? He was one of those original disciples who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus. For three years, he was one of Jesus' closest companions. He heard Jesus teach. He watched Jesus heal. Thomas even saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He may not have understood everything that Jesus meant when he talked about his life, his death, and his resurrection, But now he's in a room with other disciples who were telling Thomas, we've seen him. He's alive. And what is Thomas' reaction? Blatant skepticism. Hardened cynicism. Thomas isn't hopeful but unconvinced. You don't hear any plaintive cry in Thomas' voice. Oh, I wish I could believe. No. Thomas thinks that the news of Jesus being alive, that's an absurd claim. And so he makes an equally absurd claim in verse 27. Unless I put my finger into the mark in his hands and my hand up into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is being unreasonable. Thomas is rejecting eyewitness testimony. He rejects what he himself has heard and seen from Jesus. He's obstinate in his doubt. He's proud of his doubt. Do you doubt? Do you sometimes struggle to believe? Do you sometimes wonder if Christianity is true? I do. Like many of you, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, and we were at church all the time. This is back when the Southern Baptists were at church all the time. We had Monday night visitation, Wednesday night potluck Bible study, Sunday morning service, Sunday night service. We were at church all the time. I grew up in the church. I went to Sunday school and youth group. As a teenager, I led the music for youth group. I preached my first sermon when I was 17 years old. I led Bible studies for a time. I preached in a prison on a regular basis. I went to Bible college. Eventually, I made my way to seminary. I'm a professional Christian. I'm a pastor. And I doubt I've never not been a believer, and I've never not been a doubter. Some people think today that it's admirable to doubt. They think that doubt is a more mature form of spirituality, that something that has grown out of the ashes of a childhood faith. 
People who doubt, some people think, well, they're smarter. They're more sophisticated. They're less gullible than those people who believe all that stuff. But I think that's a misunderstanding of what doubt is. Doubt isn't a settled conclusion that what you used to believe is wrong. Doubt is a feeling. Doubt is a fear. Doubt is a worry. It's often provoked by something in your life that causes you to question God's goodness. And then a question begins to settle in your mind and in your heart that's hard to get rid of. Is it really true? But friends, doubt can only occur where there is already faith. Unbelievers don't doubt because they don't have a relationship with God that gives rise to situations in which doubt can be expressed. If you're a Christian this morning, you will be in a never-ending conversation with doubt because you will never have all of the answers to all of your questions. Just like your faith can grow and get stronger, doubt can grow and get stronger if you don't deal with it. This morning, I want to look at three ways that doubt grows in us as we consider the story of Thomas. In many people, an insatiable quest for certainty feeds their doubt. An insatiable quest for certainty can feed doubt. You see, there are some things that it's just impossible for us to know the exact truth about. I have to trust the historians that a person by the name of George Washington once lived and was president of the United States. I can't see that on my own. And I also don't have the time or the inclination to do all of the primary research myself. So there is a sense in which I have to follow somebody else's guide. I have to know that they're telling me the truth or they are trustworthy. I'm never going to know all the facts about everything. Now, some folks just don't like that. They want absolute certainty on every little thing that confronts them. But that's impossible. And when it turns to religion, they'll often use a higher level, a higher standard on faith than anything else. And they'll say, well, if I can't get answers here, then it's all made up. It's all make-believe. It's a sham. But friends, that's not honest doubting. Honest doubts are humble because they lead you to ask questions. Honest doubts are open to belief. If you're really asking for information and good arguments, you're going to get them. Are you willing to doubt your doubts? As Tim Keller once put it. Sometimes that insatiable quest for certainty feeds and fuels our doubts. That's the first way that doubt grows. The second way that doubt grows is that a morbid obsession with doubt 
can make doubt grow. Sometimes doubt becomes like the ring in the hands of Gollum. Hmm, my precious. We become obsessed with our doubts. We read books and articles. We follow people on Twitter and Facebook that also have doubts. But obsession isn't looking for resolution. Obsession is looking for affirmation. Do you doubt this morning? I hate to break it to you, but you're not special for doubting. Anyone who has actually ever wrestled with the claims of Christianity, anyone who has taken God seriously in any significant way has doubts. So you need to treat your doubts the way that ancient believers treated their doubts. Psalm 88, verse 14. The psalmist cries out, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? The psalmist is saying, where are you? I can't find you. I can't see you. You don't seem to be present in my life. Doubt and despair are overwhelming me. But what does the psalmist do that we often don't do? He prays through his doubts. He uses his doubt as an avenue of prayer, taking it directly to the Lord. Sometimes an insatiable quest for certainty will fuel our doubts. Sometimes a morbid obsession with doubt will fuel our doubts. Third, a weak faith often feeds doubt. How many of you here this morning have friends who used to claim to be Christians, but now would say that they are skeptics or agnostics, atheists, or maybe they're adherents now of some different kind of religion? I have those people in my life. I'm sure that you have those people in your life too. And I notice that there's a pattern with a lot of these folks. Again, everybody doubts. That's not the issue. But the people who who ultimately reject Christianity never do it because they are convinced of the truth of some other system. Instead, they usually just stop being Christian before they embrace anything else. I respect folks who have intellectual struggles. If you're an honest doubter this morning, I'd love to talk to you about your doubts and share some of my own. But too often, people just stop. They stop doing Christian things. They stop coming to church and participating. They stop praying. They stop reading the Bible. They stop taking the Lord's Supper. They stop talking about spiritual things. They stop confessing their sins. And as their faith grows weaker, doubt gets stronger. One of the things we learn from Thomas is that Christianity is a falsifiable religion. It's a particular technical term. A falsifiable religion. Its claims can be tested. And if they are not true, then nothing about Christianity should be believed. 
It doesn't matter what kind of ethical system it is, or a moral system, or a philosophical system. If the historic claims of Christianity are not true, then we need to turn out the lights and go away. This is unique to the Christian faith. The Muslim has to believe or trust that the prophet Muhammad had a private encounter with God. And that encounter is unable to be tested historically. They just have to take it on faith that Muhammad had this encounter. In Buddhism or Hinduism, there are no central claims of historic events to investigate. You either accept their philosophy of belief or you don't. There's no objective way to test them. But Thomas, he goes right to the heart. He goes right to the central claim of Christianity. The thing that makes nothing else matter. Show me the body. That's what Thomas wants to see. Show me the body. You say he's raised again from the dead? Show me. And he gets the proof that he's looking for. Verse 27, Jesus tells him, put your finger here. And see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. How does Thomas respond? Does he lean forward and start poking Jesus? No. Instead, he cries out, verse 28, My Lord and my God. At the sight of Jesus, Thomas is filled with wonder and awe. And there is only one word left to describe this. His teacher, his rabbi, his friend, someone that he has been with, For three years, he looks at him and he says, you are Yahweh. You are Israel's God in the flesh. This is the high point of the gospel. This is the climax of John's record of Jesus. Thomas has taken to his lips that which we heard in the very first verses of John's gospel. The word was God. The Word became flesh. And Thomas is not just making a general statement. He is making a personal profession of faith. My Lord, my God, Thomas says. Friends, this is important for you to understand. Faith isn't just intellectual knowledge. It includes that, but it moves beyond that to personal trust. It's not trust in a dogma. It's not trust in a doctrine. It's trust in a person. Jesus. I believe that you are who you said you are. I believe that you did what you claimed to do. It's trust that I belong to Jesus. That He is my Savior. I noticed something this week that I've never considered before, partly because of the way that we talk about Thomas, doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. But this story isn't written to highlight Thomas's doubt. 
The story is written to highlight his belief. That's that's what John is getting at in verses 30 and 31. He says, many other signs. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which aren't written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. See, John isn't merely recording an interesting story of something that happened long ago, far, far away. He's recording propositional truth. Eyewitness testimony that must be believed if we are to know and enjoy life with God. He assumes that when we hear this record, we, like Thomas, will also believe. So how do we refer to Thomas from now on? I don't think we can call him Doubting Thomas anymore. But I'm sure that Thomas, like you and me, before he died a martyr's death in India, you can still visit his gravesite there. I'm sure that he also endured doubts, questions about God's goodness, wondering what God was up to. So is he believing Thomas? Is he doubting Thomas? Maybe we should just call him St. Thomas. Beloved of God. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Captured and held tightly by the one that he walked with for three years who paid for his own sin. You see, Thomas isn't ultimately identified by his doubt or by his faith. Thomas isn't known by his good works or his bad works, his virtues or his vices. And neither are you. We are all named and identified by the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. The one who died for our sins and who was raised for our justification so that we might also be known as saints, as citizens of the household of God, as children of the Heavenly Father, as new creatures in Christ, those who have been reconciled to God, the spotless bride of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Thomas. Thank you for the way that you used what could be an embarrassing story about any of us to instead help us wrestle with our own doubts and with that relationship that all of us have between faith and doubt. O Lord, feed our faith. Help us address our doubts so that more and more we can be confident in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.